Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 37. Last week, I wrapped up a two-part episode on the Dead Sea. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the Battle of Siddim, as found in Genesis Chapter 14. So let's get started. The Battle of the Vela Siddim is often referred to as the War of Nine Kings, or the Slaughter of Shedalamur. It can be found in Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 17, and occurred in the time of Abraham and Lot. The geographic location, the Vela Siddim, was the site of the actual battleground for the cities of the Jordan River Plain that rebelled against Mesopotamian rule. And the passage in Genesis 14 is different from the rest of the Abrahamic narrative, as it places Abraham in the wider, outside historical context of Mesopotamia and Canaan. Since it's short enough, I'll quote the source from the New Revised Standard Version. In the days of King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Shedalamur of Elam, and King Tidal of Giam, these kings made war with King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adam, King Shem-Eber of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All of these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedalamur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedalamur and the kings who were with him came and subdued the Repium in Eshteroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shevkira Ethium, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the edge of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is, Kadesh, and subdued all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adam, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam with king Shedalamur of Elam, king Tidal of Giam, king Amparaphel of Shinar, and King Arioch of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went in their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who lived in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshal and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went into pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his nephew Lot with his goods, and the women and the people." So what does all of this mean? And if what follows sounds a little familiar, well, I touched on it many episodes ago when covering Canaan, but I did not explore the history at that time. Also, be aware that the explanation is from both Genesis and Jewish tradition. In the book of Genesis, it is explained that during the days of Lot, the Vale of Siddam was a river valley where the Battle of Siddam occurred between four Mesopotamian armies and five cities of the plain. The battle occurred before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
According to the account, the Elamite king Shedelmer has subjugated the tribes and cities surrounding the Jordan River plain. Then, after 13 years, four of the kings rebelled against Shedelmer's rule. According to Jewish tradition, the revolt started when they refused to pay monetary tribute to King Shedelmer. In response, Shedelmer and three other kings started a war against King Bera of Sodom, and the four other kings allied with him. The northern forces apparently quickly overwhelmed the southern kings of the Jordan Plain, driving some of them into the asphalt and tar pits in the valley. Those who managed to escape fled to the mountains. Among the fleers were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were then stripped of their valuables, as such has been the tradition of the victors throughout history. Also, in the tradition of the era, many of the inhabitants of the defeated cities were captured. Among the captives was Abraham's nephew, Lot. When word of Lot's capture reached Abraham, he immediately organized a rescue campaign. Abraham armed 318 of his trained servants. I'm assuming since the word train was used, it signifies that they were proficient in the martial arts. And no, that's not just karate. Abraham, along with his trained servants, pursued the armies that were in the process of returning to their homelands. The rescue operatives caught up with the kidnappers in the city of Dan. Dan is the northernmost city in modern-day Israel. As the crow flies, the distance from the south side of the Dead Sea, where the original battle is thought to have taken place, to Dan is about 165 miles or 265 kilometers. Back to the story. Abraham's soldiers performed multiple flanking maneuvers, essentially surrounding the enemy during a night raid. Some attackers retreated, while the army of Abraham pursued. The running battle was fought as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, about 65 miles or 105 kilometers in a straight line from Dan. It was in Hobah that Abraham and his forces defeated Chedorlaomer and his army, or what was left of it at this point. Abraham then recovered all the goods, the captives, and his no doubt grateful nephew Lot. After the battle, and as found in the beginning of chapter 14, verse 17, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and blessed Abraham. Think of it as a 17th century BC victory celebration, and not terribly different from the manner which we would celebrate the same today. Abraham then gave Melchizedek 10% of the recovered goods. Then Bera, the king of Sodom, came to Abraham and thanked him, requesting that Abraham keep the plunder taken from his city but return his kidnapped people. Abraham declined to keep anything, saying, I swore I would never take anything from you, so you can never say, I have made Abraham rich. Instead, Abraham accepted from Bera enough provisions for his men and his Amorite compatriots. As for historical references outside of the Old Testament, the evidence is thin. But keep in mind, it is well known that battles such as this one between the allied rulers of the various city-states were fairly common. It's just the evidence of this specific battle that is scant. According to Ronald Hindle, a professor of Near Eastern Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, quoting, The current consensus is that there is little or no historical memory of the pre-Israelite events in Genesis. End quote. Essentially, the historic records before the arrival of the Israelites are lacking. Siddim is believed to be located on the southern end of the Dead Sea, where bitumen deposits are found, not to forget other tar pits as well. 
Genesis shows that the valley was filled with many of these pits, so numerous and apparently not very visible, that the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into the pits during their rapid retreat from the advancing Mesopotamian army. As an aside, and I probably should have mentioned this in the previous episode on the Twin Cities, or maybe in the episodes on the Dead Sea, some theologians have suggested that the destruction of the cities in the Jordan Plain by divine fire and brimstone may have caused a portion of Siddam, the valley, to physically collapse and become the Dead Sea. There has been some work, both among religious historical researchers and also secular archaeologists, to identify the kings listed in the passage. The writers of both the Catholic and the Jewish encyclopedias have asserted that King Amraphel to be one and the same as Hammurabi, the 18th century BC king of the first Babylonian dynasty. Other researchers believe Amraphel to be the same as Ibel Pai El II, an 18th century BC ruler of Eshnana. Eshnana was an ancient Sumerian and later Akkadian city-state in central Mesopotamia. Its location is now the modern city of Tel Ashmar in central eastern Iraq. King Arioch is thought to have been a king of Larsa, a city in ancient Sumer. Essentially, the city-state of Elasar mentioned in the passage is thought to be the same as Larsa. It was about 16 miles or 25 kilometers southeast of Uruk, in what is now southeastern Iraq. Other researchers propose that the name Arioch could be a transliteration of the words Uruki, which roughly translates to the phrase, this place here, giving rise to the thought that Arioch was the king of some unspecified place. The unearthing of cuneiform tablets written in both Elamite and Babylonian has led researchers to believe that Shetelomer may be a transliteration of the Elamite compound word Kudu Lagomar, and this phrase roughly translates to the servant of Lagomaru. Lagomaru was an Elamite deity whose existence was mentioned by Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was a 7th century BC Assyrian king, the son of Esharhaddon, and the last powerful king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But bear in mind that he lived 1,000 years after Amraphel, and about the same time as the Babylonian captivity, which occurs much later in the Old Testament. So in my mind, at least, this rules out Kudur Lagomar as Shetelomer. Tidal has often been considered to be a transliteration of Tudhalia. Kings, all named Tudhalia, ruled the Hittites at various times from the 15th through the 12th century BC. Remembering back many episodes ago, the Hittites were a group from Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. In that period, allies, as well as tributaries, would commonly volunteer or be conscripted so voluntold, to support a ruling king on a military campaign, so it would not have been unusual for several kings to fight another group of kings in a single battle. And remember, this was not as much of a single ruler facing another single ruler, but more loose confederacies whose allegiances would vary like the direction of the wind. A letter dated to around 1770 BC points this out. It records a speech of King Zimri Lim of Mare, in the speech, he attempts to persuade the nomadic tribes under his rule to acknowledge his authority. It reads, There is no king who can be mighty alone. Ten or fifteen kings follow Hammurabi, the man of Babylon. As many follow Rimsen, the man of Larsa. Ibopael, the man of Eshnunna. 
and Emmet Pael, the man of Quintana. And twenty kings follow Yeramlim, the man of Yamhad. End quote. The alliance of four states would have ruled primarily over city-states that were distributed over a wide area. If our assumptions about the actual rulers are correct, then this area would have been from Elam, at the easternmost boundary of the Fertile Crescent, to Anatolia, at the western edge of this region. Due to this, it is currently believed that there is a restricted range of time periods that match the geopolitical context of Genesis 14. In the biblical account, Shedelamur is described as the king to whom the cities of the plain pay tribute. This aligns with the known history of the Elamites, who were a prevailing force in the region. The other three kings would have probably been vassals of Elam, or at a minimum economic trading partners. In the known history, and that is the history of the area that is also confirmed by secular researchers, there were periods when Elam was allied with Mari through trade. Remember that Mari was a Semitic city in what is now Syria. It thrived as a trading center between 2900 and 1759 BC. Mari also had trading relationships with other city-states in Syria, as well as Anatolia. In fact, it was Anatolia that provided the tin that allowed the production of bronze in this, the Bronze Age. All of these city-states also had, in one form or another, political, cultural, linguistic, and even military connections to Canaan. As such, Kenneth Kitchen, a British biblical scholar from the University of Liverpool, believes that Shedelamur may actually be the one and only ur Namu. I covered him many episodes ago with the Sumerians. He founded the third dynasty of Ur and ruled in what is thought to be the 21st century BC. At this time, Mari was connected to the interior Mesopotamia and even as far as the Persian Gulf by trade as early as the Jadep Nasser period, which ran from about 3100 to 2900 BC. Once again, these are the dates provided by archaeologists, not by me. In the beginning, as you might expect, the trade, and therefore links between the different cities, was rather limited. A true growth in the geopolitical connections between Mari and Assyria did not occur until the time of Ishbi era, the founder of the first dynasty of Ishin in the 20th century BC. At this time, the Amorites were linked to the Hittites of Anatolia and the Maori by trade. In this burgeoning era, the trade routes extended as far east as the Harapan culture of India. As the Ishin declined, the wealth and prosperity of Larsa increased. And all was well in Larsa for about 300 years until they were conquered by Hammurabi. The primary trade route between Ashur in northern Iraq and the Kanesh in central Turkey ran between the Tigris and Euphrates and passed through Haran in extreme southern Turkey on the border with Syria. During this time, the empires of Shamshi Adad I and Rimsen I included most of northern Mesopotamia. With all of these facts and beliefs, Professor Kitchen concludes that this is the time period during which the narrative of Genesis 14 takes place. Overall, it is a close match with the events of the time of Shamshi Adad and Shedelamur. Kitchen asserts that the only known historical period in which a king of Elam while allied with Larsa, was able to enlist the support of a Hittite king and also a king of Eshnuna as partners and allies in a war against Canaanite cities was during the Old Babylonian period, around the turn of the 19th century BC. 
This was when Babylon was ruled by Hammurabi, and also while Rilmsen I controlled Mari. At this time, Rilmsen allied with the kings of Syria and Anatolia in a confederacy directed against Mari, whose king was Shemshi Adad. Kitchen then uses the geopolitical context, the valuation of slaves, and the nature of the contracts entered into by Abraham to date the events Abraham encounters. Kitchen views the contracts between Abraham and the other characters encountered at various points in Abraham's journey as essentially data, and also takes into account textual evidence, and then compares these things to outside archaeological evidence such as legal documents. Then he takes all of this evidence and plants a flag in a timeline. As an example, Kitchen uses the relationship between Abraham and his wife Sarah to pinpoint a date. When Sarah proves to be infertile, she offers her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham to provide an heir. This arrangement, along with other aspects of the covenants of Abraham, point Kitchen to a relatively narrow date range, which he believes aligns with the time of Hammurabi. Obviously, there is speculation built into his logic, but in my mind at least, his theory is not completely without merit. Other outside research has identified the rulers of the area and time as Rilmsen I of Larsa, Hammurabi of Babylon, Yasham Adad, and Zimri Lin Amari, the last king of Isin known as Demik Ilyashu, the last king of Uruk, Hibbulpaiel II of Eshnunna, King Kadushalush of Elam, and Shamshid Adad I of Ashur. If these are indeed the kings found in Genesis 14, or at least some of them, how they match up with the names in the narrative is anyone's guess. But it should come as no surprise that sometimes countries are known by different names. As an analog, this podcast has a surprisingly high number of listeners in Germany. Well, that's what we English speakers call the country. People we call German actually refer to their homeland as Deutschland. In the 19th century AD, cuneiform tablets were found that, at the time, were believed to show the kings of the East and provide outside documentation of Genesis 14. It seemed to many 19th and early 20th century researchers to offer an actual historical date for Abraham. This date would be further bolstered if the kings in question could be identified. At the time, it was also proposed that Amraphel could be a transliteration of Hammurabi, primarily due to the similarities in the way the two were spelled in cuneiform. Then, a tablet was found. Well, actually, it had been found earlier, as it was rediscovered at the Imperial Ottoman Museum in Istanbul. Anyway, the tablet was from Hammurabi, and it identified a king named Kudulagamur of Alam, which of course was thought to be the same as Shadalamur. With these discoveries, by the early 1900s, many researchers had become certain that the kings of Genesis 14 had been positively identified. However, in the years since, these identifications have been discounted to the point that they are no longer considered accurate. Since that time, and as further evidence has been uncovered and examined, researchers have come to believe that Hammurabi probably lived in the 18th century BC, or maybe even later, instead of the 19th century. Also, the identification of Hammurabi with Emmerafel is certainly possible, especially in a linguistic sense, but secular research regard it as not very likely. With this, biblical scholars began a push to possibly identify Shedalomer with Sargon the Great. 
At the same time, research concerning the second millennium BC in Mesopotamia and Syria continued. But even so, no definite proof that Abraham existed has been found. But quite honestly, this isn't surprising. Even in major, well-known kingdoms, there are kings that are thought to have existed, but there is no documentation that they actually did. The previously mentioned Shetelamur tablets are currently thought to be from the 6th or 7th century BC, about a millennium after the time of Hammurabi. This is also about the same time that some believe primary parts of Genesis to have finally been written down, following centuries of oral tradition. This was covered very early in Chapter 2 of the podcast. There has been a very recent discovery that brought the issue back to the forefront. This was as a result of the discovery of the name Abiramu on Babylonian contracts dated to around 2000 BC. Unfortunately, the name itself was very common in the era, so the contracts may have been for the biblical character, but they could have just as easily have been for someone else entirely. And that's the Battle of Sidon. Next week, since it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verse 15, I plan on covering the history of Damascus and potentially the history of Syria as a whole. You don't want to miss it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Finally, go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. Several of you have. And just between you and me, you're now my favorite listeners. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.